This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is Afternoons on Dubai Eye 103.8. Great to have you with us. I'm Helen Farmer. This is the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast and a huge range of guests and topics on today's show. We were joined by the leading ultramarathon coach in the region. Lee Harris with us is asking, could you be running better from total beginners to seasoned pro? He had some great advice. Talking about perfectionism with Dr. Thiraya, something of a double-edged sword. It can help you strive for the best, but it can also hold you back. So how can you find that balance? Also in conversation with the man behind the number one restaurant in the MENA region, Ofali Bros Bistro has been announced as that number one top of the list. So speaking to Mohammed himself, how are they celebrating and what does it mean to receive such an accolade? And in conversation with two female sailors who are taking to the water this weekend in the first ever all-female team of the Dubai to Muscat offshore race. So what has been going on behind the scenes? Plus organic beauty. What are some of the greenwashing terms you need to look out for? There's a lot of sporting events in the calendar at the minute. And of course, you've got the Rack Half Marathon on the 8th, 18th of Feb. So brilliant one for all sorts of different levels. Don't be freaked out by the Half Marathon. You can do one, one, you can do 1K, you can do five miles, you can do the relay. But if you are looking at those longer distances, whether it is in an organised race or indeed in your own free time, you need to meet this man. Coach Lee Harris is with us this afternoon. He is the founder of LK Running Performance decades of experience and the leading ultra runner coach in the UAE. Thank you for making time for us, getting off there, off the tracks in the mountains for us. How are you, Lee? I'm good. Thank you for having me on. A pleasure. Now, you've said you can build runners from the ground up. Do you think there's anyone that simply shouldn't run, isn't isn't built for it or maybe doesn't have the, the necessary, I don't want to say skills, but body? <laughs> um, I think, no, I think, the, you know, if you if you start properly... Um, and unless you have an illness or something that will prevent you from doing it. But if you're not and you're physically okay, then as long as you come to someone like me, uh, a coach, basically. I think that's the difference, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's, the, it's not just really finessing a technique for speed, but it's often finessing a technique for safety as well. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people don't realize how complex running is. Um, and why do you think that is? Because it's something we used to do as kids in the, in the playground and just, surely it's just the same as put on a more expensive pair of trainers. Well, that's, yeah. I mean, the, the, the people think it was an activity and an exercise. Mm-hmm. So it's actually, I think, the, the biggest um, exercise and activity in the world. Which makes sense. It's extremely yeah. accessible. But that doesn't necessarily make it easy, I guess. No. Now, you've, you're a self-confessed nerd, love a bit of science of running tell us a little bit about your the methodology you use and i guess the philosophies as well around biomechanics in particularly yeah so i come you know i have a mechanical background so for me it's always about how things work um and with running it is highly technical it is you know very very complex and my methodology is building a foundation mechanically first um your exercise physiology your body responds or your cardiovascular and your metabolic system responds to energy demand. So if you, when you start demanding energy, your body responds to that. So that comes from a mechanical side. So as you start to run, you'll start to impound the ground, and then basically you're going to start to demand energy, and that's when your cardiovascular and your metabolic system kick in. So if you don't do that right, 
then it's going to put more stress on your cardiovascular and your metabolic system. So in, with that in mind, do you find it easier, quote unquote, to work with people that have never really run before or is it trying to like break the habits of someone that's really established? What Different challenges, I guess. It is. I mean, for me, you're working with somebody like a blank slate who's, who's coming into it first off and actually working with them. It's easier to try and build that mechanics. But also for somebody who's been doing it for a long time, they've got the fitness. Mm-hmm. So they've got that side of it. So then trying to help them just change their programming slightly. That must be difficult, though, because if people are just used to running how they run, it becomes a, a mental, you know, technique as well as physical it, it does and but the thing is and this is where i think people get confused with what i do with reference to the mechanical side um if you're not aware of your movements it doesn't matter if you've been running for 20 years if you're not actually aware of how you got there then you know you're not really focused on the mechanical movement itself mm-hmm. so you are actually programmed to do something correctly like land and load and all i'm going to do is show people how to do that but make them aware of the movement so then they understand the movement, whereas at the moment they probably don't understand what they're doing. Do you find yourself wanting to pull people over on the Kite Beach track and be like, oh, I just want just to help you? Yes. <laughs> do you? What are some, I don't want to say pet peeves, but where, where do you feel like some of the most common mistakes or missteps that, that casual runners are making? Well, if, for most runners, they, um, the way they perceive running is based on what their perception of running is. Um, and they tend to, um, it comes from their extension of walking. And walking and running mechanics are very, very different. Um, so when you, they go into running, they, they, cause unless they've actually been shown how to do it, they'll just go from an extension of, of walking. Mm-hmm. And the, you'll leave with the heel and they will you know, not get off the ground. Their, their body will start to work like they do when they walk, their upper body. And their lower legs are trying to get off the ground and their upper body is trying to keep them on the ground. And it's that the coordination is out, their timing is out. And that's what I see when I see people run. I see an amalgamation of walking and running, basically. Now, you think you've analysed thousands of hours of videos of runners. What are you looking for in order to make some of those tweaks? Well, this is the mechanics and the, and the kin- kinematics of running, is looking at the mechanics side. So I look at very specific angles of the leg and the foot when they land. Um, and there's symmetry through the stride because in order to maintain a constant velocity, the forces have to be even either side. So the forces you apply in front, apply uh, the forces you know, have to equal the forces you apply behind. So this also comes from the mechanical side because the length of the muscles and the joints and everything else. So this I is a whole world yeah. that I wasn't even aware of. Never mind being here in Dubai. And I want to talk about the ultra side. How what how do you define ultra runningly? Uh, ultra running is anything basically over marathon distance. So 45k basically is is an ultra, but the official ultra distance is sort of above 50k. How many how many kilometers do you reckon you've covered in your lifetime? Oh, I don't know. I know I've, <laughs> I've run over 25,000 kilometers just in the mountains and the desert oh, here. Wow. Um just covering through around Dubai. Now, I want to ask you about Uriah, about terrain mm-hmm. because that's an interesting point when you think about um, maybe it's the shoe but also the technique and you know what you might be doing on your treadmill or even the beach track. How does that translate to running? In, yeah, exactly like if you're going out to Schalke, for example. Um, well, f- running on trail is very, very different. Um, it, it is, it's a technique and this is where people get confused with form and technique. So your running form is based on your mechanics. Um, the, the technique is more based on what type of running you're doing. So if you're a sprinter or a middle distance or long distance, 
and with a trail. So with the, the trail, you just it's, it requires a lot more stability. You're not getting the same response off the ground and every foot that you land on, every foot you put down on the ground is uneven. So it requires a lot more stability. Mm-hmm. It also requires a slightly different, you know, um, cardiovascular or say physiological systems react slightly different as well. I've got a question here. This is right. from Karen saying, does he listen to anything running all those kilometres? That's such a good question. Do you, do you listen to anything? Yeah, my feet and my breathing. Really? Yeah, I don't listen to any music. Um, I, I literally listen to my, my body, basically, because I'm fully aware of everything that is going on with my body. Um, so I listen to my footsteps and my breathing. That sounds like a form of meditation. Do you, it uh, is. Is that where yeah. you get your relaxation from, ironically? Yeah, it is. It's a great stress relief. And when I go out in the mountains, it's almost like a connection. Mm-hmm. And get back to that. And I've always, that's, you know, with running and all the sort of sports that I've done, it's always that connection. I wanted to ask you lastly, as I said, Rackhoff Marathon coming up in less than a month. Um, any tips for preparing for a distance such as that? If someone is, I'm not saying complete beginner, but if someone's been getting their 5, 10Ks in, stepping it up, so to speak, for, uh, for an event such as that? Well, what I do is, is recommend, you, you know, going to one of the running clubs. There's some amazing running clubs here in Dubai. Um, Dubai, Dubai Creek Striders is the, most, is the biggest um, and most social running group here. And there are a lot of people there who have run a lot of marathons and a lot of half marathons. And you're going to get an awful lot of advice. Um, you can even come and see me. I mean, I'm open. I'm always on Kite Beach. If you want to stop and have a coffee and a chat and... You know, but if you want to, if you want to actually build a plan or something like that, go and see these people. These people are running regular runs every week. They have a great social group, lots of different pace levels, so you're not going to be out of your depth. Mm-hmm. Um, and they cater for pretty much everyone. And they're such, they're all passionate runners. And I think that's the really important thing. Is yes, it's the passion, but also it's like don't get injured. <laughs> do, yeah. do it. You know, get it, get those foundation blocks in place with someone like you, and then keep on building on it a couple of people saying who is this man and how can we reach him <laughs> <laughs> this is lee harris how can how can people get in touch with you coach um you, you're probably best to find me on on instagram as coach performance or lk running performance um, i'm on instagram uh, the website's down at the moment so we'll, it's all right we'll, we'll we'll push people to the instagram and are you taking on clients at the minute or are you just there on on kite beach having a having a chat and a coffee from time to time no, we've got the whole running development program going from monday tuesday wednesday thursday so we build mechanics you know for complete beginners so we have like a running drill session on tuesdays uh, cadence running on mondays and then we have the performance sessions uh, Wednesday and Thursday. So if you're if you're interested, these are group sessions. They're fully coached by me and my assistant, Mr. Ghani, um, who's amazing. Yes. And um, well, thank you. Yeah. Lots to think about. Yeah. I'm really and I really really mean that. A lot to think about when when people lace up their trainers. Yeah, um, I, I will happily share Lee's details if you want to send me the word "run." I'll send you his Instagram so you can see what he's all about. See some amazing feats him and his uh, his community have been doing, and of course, reach out if you do need a bit of help. Coach Lee, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so so much, sir. Keep on running, keep on trucking, and I'll see you down there. I'm having my hot chocolate, and you're uh, <laughs> you're, okay, you're on the track. Thank you. As, as you said, if you want Lee Harris's details, drop me a message on four zero zero one with the word "run," and I will send you that link.
talking health this hour and Arab health is underway. One development that has really caught our attention is news of a fetal cardiac MRI method. This is used to build 3D images of the fetal heart, so in utero, and the surrounding anatomy. Joining us now is Dr Owen Miller, consultant in paediatric and fetal cardiology. The Evelina London Children's Hospital is in Dubai for just two days and we've stolen them away from a very busy Arab health. Tell us a little bit more. How are you, Doctor? Yeah, well, uh, very well, thank you. Thank you for asking me on your show. You're Happy welcome. to uh, talk about this or answer any questions. Thanks, Doctor. And I'm going to ask you to keep it simple for us who are not uh, doctors in fetal cardiology. So I want to know a little bit more about how, how it all works and the implications. But before we get to that, I wondered how big an issue is congenital heart disease here in the region? What, what, what are we talking about? Yeah, so um, about one in every hundred babies born... Uh, will have a congenital heart problem. And so it's one of the commonest uh, problems that babies are born with. And uh, that can range from very simple things to very complex things. But if you think about, you know, a couple of classes at school, then then one in every three or four classes at school are going to have um, a child with congenital heart disease. And can we talk about, as you say, that severity? I mean, my brother was born with a hole in his heart, as was my nephew. Um, and they were both a little yeah. bit blue when they were born and, you know, had to be monitors as, as babies and toddlers. And my brother's now a, a strapping 37-year-old drummer and his, his little boy's a strapping two-year-old boy. But it was obviously a, a big cause for concern when, when they were both born. Um, and this is at the... I guess, the less severe end of the scale. But, you know, just how bad in, can this be, Dr. Owen? Yeah, so so the great majority of babies born with congenital heart disease will not need, need surgery. And many of them, the things like holes in the heart will either heal themselves, but they will require monitoring. It's really the uh, the smaller group who have either major alterations in the anatomy. That means things aren't joined up correctly, the blood vessels aren't joined up to the right heart chambers, or the valves haven't formed correctly. So these are the group that um, uh, we spend a lot of time with. These are the group that we have to do and offer complex heart surgery for. Some of that surgery is required immediately after birth, in the first days of life. And so it is a range. There are those who, like your brother, who's grown up to be a strapping young man or not so young anymore, <laughs> but there are other children who require surgery from, you know, from the get-go. So let's talk about this technology. Are you able to explain it in a way that, as I said, us who are not consultants in paediatrics uh, can, can understand? Uh, course, How does it work, Owen? So if you think about... Um, uh, ultrasound. Most most women who've had a pregnancy or most people who know a woman who's had a pregnancy will be familiar with ultrasound where the technique uh, gives pictures on the screen of the baby moving, of the, the organs, including the heart. Now, we've been doing that for 20 or 30 years, and that's a well-established technique. However, it only gives you a two-dimensional view of whatever you're looking at, say the heart. It gives you a slice. Ultrasound just gives you a 2D slice. But the heart and the blood vessels are not 2D structures. They're three-dimensional. Mm -hmm. And so what we wanted to do was take it a bit further and say, how can we represent the heart and problems with the heart and the blood vessels in a three-dimensional way. Now, many of you uh, may also be familiar with three-dimensional techniques like CT or MRI. Some people have had an MRI of a broken leg or of their brain or whatever. And, and, and an MRI does give you three-dimensional pictures. The problem with the fetus before birth is the fetus does not lie still. The fetus is moving all the time. And therefore, if you do an MRI, you've got the baby moving around within the field the whole time. So what we've developed is a technique of motion correction. 
so we can take an MRI. So the mother during pregnancy will go into the MRI scanner. There's no radiation, perfectly mm -hmm. safe for the mother, perfectly safe for the baby, no injections, no IV drip, nothing. And uh, we, we acquire the MRI data, but the MRI pictures we get out of that will be uh, corrupted or unintelligible because the baby would have been moving around. Mm -hmm. So what we need to do is therefore motion correct that. And we do that by taking a long uh, acquisition of data and we break that down into millisecond slices and then we reorder those slices to abolish the motion wow. artifact. And so it's called motion correction. How fascinating. And okay. from that... You're going to get an yeah, from that, Yeah. And from that we are able to make a virtual 3D heart model on the screen. And then one step further with 3D printing technology, we can 3D print a model of the heart. And bearing in mind that a, a baby at, say, midway through pregnancy at 20 or 25 weeks, the heart is only one or two centimetres in total size. So it's a tiny structure and the blood vessels are only one or two millimetres. So we can 3D print these tiny hearts in very high resolution detail to, to be able then to plan the surgery that the child needs. Wow. So we're talking obviously very, very early detection, but as you were talking about their preparation and opportunity to repair as well. Um, what, what, are yeah. the, what are the implications? And I guess the question I'm sure a lot of parents-to-be are listening thinking now you know when are we going to see this rolled out dr owen yeah so so this is um a technique which is coming from the bench to the bedside so we've been uh devoted, this this work has been led by my colleagues uh, uh david lloyd kabir and bush paraja and john simpson in london at the evelina plus together with uh, king's college london our university link and they've been developing this over the last decade or so about five years ago we went from bench to bedside we've validated it and we're using it um routinely now the, the women have their normal ultrasound if there's a concern an ultrasound then we consider the mri and we do that in in several hundred women per year so it, it's a, it's, it, and it's, the good thing is it uses a standard MRI scanner. So you don't have to buy fancy new equipment. Mm -hmm. The equipment is what every hospital will have. It's a matter of how you manage the data in terms of the software. So this is something that we're validating, we're talking about, we're raising the, uh, raising the awareness of. And I think this will become mainstream over the coming uh, one to two years. Wow. Well, I have to say, um, it's almost enough to make me want to have another baby just to try and <laughs> just to avail of some of your amazing technology. Not quite enough, though, Owen. Um, and thank you. How, how has Arab Health been treating you? I'm sure you've been meeting some fascinating people. What, what are going to be some of your big takeaways of, uh, of this week? Yeah, no, Arab Health has been absolutely phenomenal. You know, the last time I came was before the pandemic. And so this is uh, busier and bigger than it was even before the pandemic. It's incredibly busy, but some fantastic uh, colleagues had a lot of interest in, in, uh, in this work. Uh, my, my colleague, uh, Mr. Barani, was presenting some uh, cardiac surgery, which he does down through a little telescope without any cuts in the chest with just a couple of punctures. So we've been presenting some really cutting edge stuff and we've had some really good feedback. Yeah. I had a visit from the uh, 
from the UK ambassador to uh, to the UAE, and he was very interested in the technique. So we've had a pretty busy couple of days, but it's been really, really pleasurable. Well, thank you for making time for us this afternoon. I think it really just highlights exactly what is happening down there at Arab Health. We've got you know real time implications for patients and the population. We've also got looking ahead to the future, and I think you're the, the perfect mix of those. And thank you for bringing it to our attention, Dr. Owen Miller. Have a wonderful time in Dubai. I hope you get the chance to relax somewhat before heading back to London. Enjoy the sunshine and uh, congratulations to you and all the team. It sounds like a really, really incredible breakthrough um, in the healthcare industry. Thank you so much, Dr. Owen Millen, consultant in paediatric and fetal cardiology, speaking to us from Arab Health. He's at Evelina London Children's Hospital. Exciting news on the food front. Middle East and North Africa's 50 best restaurants returned for a second edition just last night with a brand new ranking. It was announced at a live ceremony in Abu Dhabi and the restaurants are chosen by a panel of about 250 anonymous voters who can each select seven restaurants from across the region. 18 out of that top 50 um, on this year's list were here in the UAE, followed by six restaurants from Israel, five each from Egypt and Jordan, four from Morocco, three each from Bahrain, Lebanon and Saudi Arabia, two from Kuwait and one from Tunisia. So let's look at the top five in reverse order. In at number five, we had three fills here in Dubai. Oceano um, at the Palm um, Atlantis there also won the highest new entry award. He had Fusions by Tala in Bahrain. In at number two, Two was Tresson Studio and taking the number one slot, Ofali Brothers Bistro in Jumeirah. And he's on the phone right now. We've got co-founder Mohammed. This is the story of three immigrant chef brothers from Syria, World's 50 Best said, working together to bring a creating a genuinely unique dining experience and against the odds triumph of personal perseverance, brilliant storytelling and endless curiosity. Mohammed, chef. Congratulations. How are you, sir? Thank you. Um, I'm, I don't know. I'm, <laughs> I'm very happy, super excited. Uh, it was a great, crazy night yesterday. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't believe, I don't know. Yeah. This is the quietest I think I've ever heard you, by the way, which is saying something. It sounds like you're in a state of shock. It hasn't quite sunk in yet. I was, absolutely, I was. It's like, I don't know what I have to say, but, you know, I just... Well, I remember in that time, I remember the family, the team, the friends, the people who support me, the, you know, my guests, uh, like the people like who love us, who support us, who make it like, you know, who bring us number one. Oh. It's because, because of you, because of people, we are number one. What does it mean then to you and the team to be named the best restaurant in the Middle East and North Africa 2023? It's, it's tough. It's a big responsibility. Because we, you know, it's my dream to lead the gastronomy in Middle East, and here we go. It's now the time to to act and uh, to be more disciplined and to be more genuine and to be, you know, to be us as we as the way we, you know, we did it from the beginning. We're gonna continue with the same, and uh, I think it's a, a responsibility to, you know, to guide the young talented, the young chefs, mm-hmm. we have so many of them in Dubai, to, to have their own homegrown concept, you know, to, to make their own dream, their own food, and uh, that's what I do. Well, 
You are an absolute inspiration. You're also, as as they, as World's 50 Best alluded to, one of the greatest storytellers, both through your food and through your personality when people step into your restaurant. Um, and I wondered, I think you're going to get a few more people stepping into the restaurant. What kind of impact <laughs> does an accolade such as this have on a restaurant's business? What, what are you expecting to see? Because I know our very own Richard Dean from Business Breakfast off the back of this announcement, has already booked a table for lunch on Friday. I, so, immediate. I don't know. I'm scared. I'm, I don't. <laughs> so we already, we already back. We already, you know, uh, you know, fully booked for like almost like for two, three weeks and before the, you know, the announcement. And now I can tell you the the phone is crazy. You know, it's nonstop since yesterday. <sighs> so uh, people, you know, love us. They wanna, you know, uh, send you know more love and to share, you know. The, they're very happy. Everyone happy. They're passing by around to the restaurant just to say congratulations. Oh, that's a, but isn't that a beautiful that's, reflection of, of the Dubai food community? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, now it's like, you know, everyone happy, to be honest. That's why we love everyone. We love our family brothers. You know, it's a platform. It's a culture of happiness. That's what, what we want. I'm going to continue with that. And it comes across in the food. It really does. You know, you've got this imagination, this curiosity, the celebration of your heritage and your travels and what it means yeah. to be in Dubai. And I wondered, for anyone that hasn't had their lunch yet, I apologise. Um, I would like you to make us a little bit hungry. Chef Mohammed Afali, tell yeah. us a little bit about some of the big hits um, on the menu with your diners right now and some of the dishes think, that you're really I excited think, about. I, I, I think it's everything. Uh, uh, Dubai is a great uh, city that gives us the opportunity to create something new that's never existed before without losing our essence and the soul and spirit of our own culture. And then I think our family bros, we represent all of you. All, you know, who hear us, we represent you. We represent your food, your culture. Uh, it's, a, it's not about me and my where I came from. It's all about myself and the team. And uh, I can't tell you which, which, which recipes are the best than the others because all of them are delicious. Oh, I've got some favorites. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I think everyone. Tell comes. me what you, tell me what's your favorite. Oh my yeah, I, would, I would love to hear it from you. I love the duck that I had. That beautiful. Oh that was incredible. And I know the whole yeah. team comes together so well on the desserts as well. And I, I love that kind of sense of illusion and fun that you have with the desserts. Um, the guess yeah, what? Well. I don't think anyone's really understood what your guess what is, but it's now you make you, you make it hard. I want to change the menu. How you can do that? Uh, and the corn bomb. How can we not talk about oh the corn bomb? But no, I, I really just want to say a heartfelt congratulations. It's really, really wonderful. I think to have a homegrown brand so celebrated, yeah. so put in the spotlight. And of course, there, you know, some big names, some big hitters in that top 50 list. You know, you've got your Zoomers and yeah. your Hexans and, you know, and, and, and rightly so because the food's phenomenal. But I think what this really means for the region is just how much we need to be focusing our attention great. on that homegrown talent. Omar saying yeah. um, Ofali has really exploded. They are not stopping any time soon. Quite right. So, so Mohammed, how are you celebrating? Or are you just going to have a nice little lie down tonight? I, 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 first of all, I want, I want to you know, give that uh, success to everyone who lives in the new and Dubai. This is for, for you, not for me, for everyone to celebrate, you know, homegrown concept to be, whatever, uh, uh, you know, uh, well known in the entire world. That is like you know, it's a big achievement. It was a dream for me, and uh, you know, I will keep chasing to do better. I promise everyone will be uh, a platform that you know, uh, not a restaurant, not gonna be. Uh, it's just like you know, we serve food. No, we're gonna 
take the responsibility to be part of the community, to support local, locality, to be seasonal, sustainable as much as we can. So the celebration, I don't know what's going to happen. So I'm just going to wait back to the rest of the school. Well, I will celebrate with everyone. Come to our fireworks to celebrate together. Absolutely. Well, as I said, well done for acknowledging the importance of that platform and that accolade. And it really couldn't happen to a nicer guy and a more deserving team. Chef Mohammed Fali, thank you so, so much. Good luck getting a booking. A few people saying, where is it? Wassel 51, Wassel Road, Jamira. If you want the details, just send the word food and I will send you their Instagram. And you might have a rumbling tummy, but you're going to have to be quick to get a table. Mohammed, all the very best to you and the team. Congratulations. Wear that scarlet scarf with pride. And uh, an absolute honour to be speaking to you this afternoon. Mohammed Afali, as we said, the winner, him and his team, the brothers from Syria, Mohammed Wassam and Omar, the best restaurant in the Middle East and North Africa 2023. What a guy. We're looking at a couple of topics this hour, which are very much interlinked. We're talking people-pleasing and perfectionism. Now, perfectionism, I think, is something of a double-edged sword, to be honest. But, you know, on one hand, it can really motivate you to perform at a high level, deliver some top-quality work, whether that is in the workplace or in the home. On the other hand, it can cause you unnecessary anxiety and even slow you down. So how can you harness some of the positives while mitigating the negatives? And what some of the measures and practices can you use to keep that perfectionism in check? If you're concerned about how this might be holding you back, please don't hesitate to get in touch. Joining us live from the Human Relations Institute and Clinic is clinical psychologist. We've got Dr. Thrye with us. How are you, Dr. T? I'm well, Helen. How are you? I'm really well, thanks, love. Really well. This topic got me thinking, though, and I don't know if you're willing or legally, professionally able to share this, but I'm wondering, are you are you something of a perfectionist? I would say I used to be a neurotic perfectionist, and then I learned how to become a healthy perfectionist. Oh, I want to break this down a little bit in terms of, yeah, I guess, types of perfectionism. I can't decide if I am because one of my mottos is definitely done is better than perfect. Just sometimes you just got to get it done. But there are some things if I do something and I'm not happy with how I performed or what I produced or an interaction, a conversation, it haunts me. And it can, you know, it's got the power to kind of ruin my day or, or my or my mood. So in some areas I really am, but in some areas I really don't give a monkeys. I really don't. So... I'm intrigued to kind of unpack this topic um, over the course of that hour. And we have had a lot of messages actually asking about this. Now, I, I will have any excuse to play a bit of Brene Brown, but this is Brene Brown breaking down perfectionism from her point of view. I think perfectionism is something we don't understand very well. So what we think it is, is we think it's being our best selves. Actually, in the research, the opposite of perfectionism is striving for excellence or healthy striving. Perfectionism is actually a defense mechanism that says to us, you know that thing that whispers in your ear? Hey, if you look perfect, do perfect, and accomplish perfect, you can avoid or minimize shame and judgment and blame. So perfectionism is not about striving for excellence or being our best selves. It's how we self-protect. Mm, I could see you nodding on screen. So, Dr. T, are you able to tell us a little bit about how you view perfectionism as a clinical psychologist? So essentially, perfectionism is a tendency to really want to be the best at everything. And it's and it, and it comes with impossibly high standards and actually extremely unrealistic standards. And so you always give yourself like a 1% success rate and a 99% failure rate. So what ends up happening is that you go into the cycle of, 
um, I want to do the best. I want to be the best. I want to, you know, achieve up here. And because that's not actually humanly possible, what ends up happening is that you end up quote unquote failing and then feeling miserable and then going into that shame, that guilt, that resentment, that frustration within yourself. And then so and, and then rinse and repeat and you just keep doing it over and over again. Now, a lot of what Brene Brown was saying is actually accurate. However, I would add the fact that we have a tendency towards uh, perfectionism because we're trying to increase our self-worth and our self-value. And that's mm-hmm. more of a perception than it is a reality. And so by striving to be perfect, we're actually telling ourselves that if I get there, then I am worthy. If I get there, then I am of value. Wow. Okay. And where does that come from? Childhood. (laughs) (laughs) My mother. (laughs) Psychology, everything is about childhood. (laughs) But 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 in reality, yes. Sorry, I have to to say that it is. I mean, childhood, there's a lot of it that comes from our childhood. It comes from fear. It comes from parents expecting us to be perfect. It comes from even parents only praising us or giving us um, good feedback when we do something, quote unquote, that's right or quote unquote, something that they want. It can also come from, interestingly enough, from the opposite of that. When we have very chaotic, unpredictable or inconsistent families, we tend to strive to be perfect as a way to kind of mitigate the chaos and just want to be like, okay, if I'm perfect, Mm -hmm. then everybody will kind of leave me alone and, and none of this will come my way. So it's interesting to see how it evolves, but more often than not, that perfectionism comes from either an indirect or a direct, um, you know, uh, expression from the parents, mm-hmm. or it comes from the environment at home. Joining us live is Dr. Thiraya, clinical psychologist, and we are talking about perfectionism and really interesting to get your messages on this. Now, Dr. Thiraya, we were discussing burnout yesterday on the show, and I wondered how that's linked to perfectionism. Oh, absolutely. So perfectionism can definitely lead to burnout because in in reality, what you're doing is you're not really thinking of the bigger picture. You're so focused on the very, very small details and making sure that or trying as as much as you can to perfect them that you end up exhausting yourself both emotionally and mentally. And that can also lead to more burnout when you are kind of looking at things as constant failures where you're, where you're not really recognizing all the achievements that you're engaging in. You're not really recognizing how good the whole process of what you're doing is. And you're just actually only focused on the goal at the end of it. Isn't that interesting? Because that's what you taught as a child, isn't it? You know, practice makes perfect. And, you know, it's, you know, practice makes progress. And I think teaching our children to stop striving for this impossible ideal, even that's such an easy thing to say, kind of stopping that conditioning really, really early. Um, Speaking of burnout, Dr. Gordon Parker is a professor of psychiatry at the University of New South Wales. He's an author of a book called Burnout, a guide to identifying burnout and pathways to recovery. And he said that while there's no single formal definition of perfectionism, there are a number of statements that characterise the mindset. So have a listen to these. I try to do everything as well as possible. I put high standards on myself and most things I take on. I push myself to be the best at most things I do. And I commit myself to most things I take on. Sounds absolutely exhausting, to be honest. Um, I'm, I'm kind of curious to go to the text line on this, Thraya, because I think, I think it's still a bit of con- kind of confusion around it. Um, but I love this message um, 
This is from uh, from Gina saying, great topic. I try to manage my perfectionism by balancing my perceived wrongdoings with tangible proof of when I've done things well. I have a glass jar. I know this sounds sad. And when something goes well that I've done or I've got great feedback or something positive from a decision I've made, I write it on a coloured post-it, sticky side up, and then I stick it in the jar. Sometimes my family will sneak them in too. Nice things that I've done for them. And if I'm feeling low or focused on the one bad thing that's taken over my mind, I get a few post-its out and read them. It helps switch my brain to focus on the good stuff and if I do that rather than dwell on the minority of bad stuff it helps. Gina, write a book. What do you think of that Dr. Raya? I love it. I think it's amazing. I don't think it's sad at all. If anything, I think it's it's something that a lot of people should implement. And it's very similar to journaling. And we talk about this quite significantly when we say, you know, journal your achievements and stop looking at just the objective achievements, the achievements that society tells us are achievements that like, you know, graduating from high school, graduating from university, getting a job, getting a promotion. Those are great achievements. At the same time, we have daily achievements that we tend to just ignore. We tend to, you know, think to ourselves that, oh, it's not such a big deal. It's, it's, it's absolutely fine. But they are achievements. They're our contribution to the life that we have, which means they are achievements. And in recognizing all of these little wins, you're going to keep yourself motivated and away from this negative kind of fatalistic attitude of, mm-hmm. you know, everything sucks because I'm not where I expect myself to be. Um, let's see if we can help out Steph saying, Hi both, I was recently diagnosed with ADHD and autism at the grand old age of 43. She says in brackets, thanks TikTok. <laughs> um, so I'm now medicated and the difference it has made is night and day. However, one of my symptoms, which over the years has become a bad habit, which the meds aren't touching, is my perfectionism. It's crippling. I don't start a task because of a fear of not doing it perfectly. I've got major self-esteem issues um, and I set myself such high standards it causes issues for me when I inevitably don't meet them. I'm a people pleaser too. I want to be liked and seen as perfect with others, even folks that I don't like myself, which I know is ridiculous. I'd welcome any insights or recommended reading from Dr. T, please. Can you help out Steph then? I, I would love to start, if you don't mind, about that diagnosis and how you think that might be linked. Well, essentially with ADHD, of course, we have a lot of um, difficulties with concentration, with inattention. The biggest misconception about ADHD is that they don't pay attention to things. It's actually the opposite. They pay attention to everything. What they can't do is focus on one thing at a time. Now, with um, an autistic, and I, I don't know if that was a joke in terms of like the diagnosis was over TikTok or not. But no, she has a psychiatrist, normally, don't worry. <laughs> okay, okay, so no, no, usually what we would prefer is a psychiatrist do the diagnosis. And essentially, with um, uh, individuals that are on the spectrum, perfectionism is, is, is very common. Now, in general, we're, we, when... And I think this is the biggest fear that a lot of people have when they come into therapy and they talk about their perfectionism because they don't want to let it go because they, yeah, but it's helped me so much in my life. And I tell people, I'm like, we're not trying to get rid of the perfectionism. We're just trying to shift it from a neurotic perfectionist to a healthy perfectionist. We're trying to move you from degrading and being mean to yourself and judgmental and critical to someone who's more compassionate and empathetic and recognizes all the small wins. So you're actually part of the process rather than fighting against yourself to get you where you want to go. That being said, what what you what the, the the person who messaged had described was actually textbook when it comes to perfectionism because there are two P's to anxiety. 
perfectionism and procrastination. And so essentially what happens is if something isn't perfect, it's not, or we feel like we can't do it perfectly, we actually procrastinate it, which inevitably increases the level of anxiety that we have. So especially later on, because now we all of a sudden have so many different things that we have to focus on. So essentially, whenever we are thinking of this unhealthy neurotic perfectionism, procrastination will usually not be far behind. And in terms of any recommended reading or insights that you think might help Steph and anyone else, actually, for that matter? Oh, for sure. So Brene Brown's The Gift of Imperfection is a great one um, for people pleasing. Courage to be disliked is a phenomenal book as well. Um, off the top of my head, I can't really think of any others, Ooh, but, yeah. but if I do, I probably, I'll send them to you. Well, Hillary's been in touch and I never know how to pronounce this author's name, so I apologize. Is it Gable Mate or Mate or Mate? Mm. Or Mate, yeah. Thank you. Uh, book The Scattered Mind is great. That's from Hillary. Steph, hope that helps. It is the psychology hour and perfectionism far more common than you might think. Studies have found that actually rates have been rising for years, especially amongst young people. Pressures to have a successful career, live a comfortable lifestyle, meet a certain beauty or behavioural standards, often leading to mental health struggles. And deep diving into what causes perfectionism can, yes, help you understand a little bit more about yourself and treat yourself with kindness. When you accept that you're a human being who makes mistakes, your physical and mental health will help you. But how? Um, I tell you what, Dr. Thraya on hand this afternoon, clinical psychologist at the Human Relations Institute in Clinic. And lots of message on this, Dr. T. I'm going to get through as many as we can. Um, but I want to turn our attention, if you don't mind, to younger people, because we've had a message about a teen and we've had a message from a concerned parent saying, I'm a total perfectionist and people pleaser, in brackets, complicated backstory, but basically the product of wanting to be biddable and easy when I was a child. And I desperately don't want to pass this trait on to my children, but I can't walk the walk. They see me being a doormat all the time and it kills me. How can I correct my behaviour and protect my children? What a beautiful message. And you sound like an amazing parent and incredibly self-aware no name um dr t um it's all about breaking that pattern but how well i mean when it comes to perfectionism there is a a link to people pleasing as well right and so when you're describing yourself as a doormat and then my favorite word for the show is always boundaries so we talk about where are the boundaries where are the boundaries that you're setting for yourself as well as where are the boundaries that you're setting with other individuals um that being said though it's important to recognize that just the fact that you are trying your best to change your behaviors is really important to give yourself that kind of credit so be kind to yourself when you have that type of self-talk and recognize that it's okay to tell your kids listen mommy is not doing it 100 percent you know, and that's fine because there's no such thing as a hundred percent, but at least I'm trying, at least I'm doing my best. And so in, in raising your children, I think one of the things that really makes a difference between a parent that create creates a sort of dysfunction in the way that a child thinks and a parent that doesn't is when a parent owns their mistakes and takes accountability for the things that they're not doing well. And that's extremely important because it removes this idealization that a child has towards their parent. And it also removes any kind of expectation that the child might be perceiving that the parent wants them to be perfect. Mm-hmm. 
Which brings us to our next message. I think that's so true. It really, really is true. And I think, you know, perfectionism can show up in all sorts of different places. Of course, the workplace, we're just talking about burnout there, but certainly in parenthood as well. You know, so many pressures to be the perfect parent, whatever that means. Um, Anonymous message here saying, Hi both, I'm a little concerned about our daughter. She's 14, she had a very academic school, but seems pretty well adjusted, happy most of the time, good friends, love social stuff, very physical, adores PE theatre, but she's had a couple of meltdowns over testing in class as they get close to GCSEs when she was disappointed by the results. I keep wondering if she feels pressure from us, but I don't think so when I've asked her. She said she doesn't. She's always just got on with homework without saying a word. Um, she seems to genuinely love doing schoolwork, but I'm wondering if you've got any ideas to how to offset any pressures of perfection that she's putting on herself. I think a lot of parents will identify with this message. So thank you for reaching out and, and raising this topic. Thora, I know you work a lot with adolescents there at the Human Relations Institute and Clinic. Um, what brings to mind here? Well, one of the first things that comes to mind is teaching your child how to have more positive self-talk, right? So focus more on the progress and the work that's being put in rather than the results. And sometimes, and to be very honest, I usually say, also check your child's patterns because at times we what we notice is that unfortunately by the time a child gets to, to their teenage years, we realize that they are actually experiencing a learning difficulty and this is where so much effort is being put in but the results aren't matching and that's something that should have been noticed by the school a long time ago but it hasn't and so that child has been suffering this whole time working triple the the amount of time that they should, whereas they're not actually achieving what they're actually putting their effort for. Um, so that's one. Another thing could be very well that, you know, a lot of universities, a lot of schools, a lot of high schools, middle schools, uh, especially in a very competitive city like Dubai, uh, tend to put pressure from the teacher. The teachers tend to put a lot of pressure on the students. The administration puts a lot of pressure on the students, as well as other students put a lot of pressure mm-hmm. on the students. So it doesn't necessarily have to come from the parents but it could come from the environment that the child is in that you know you have to be the best you have to get high scores because in the end it is a reflection of the school and at the same time um, you know some teachers and I've heard some horror stories where some teachers have said some horrible things to students about like you know if you don't get these kinds of grades you're gonna you won't get accepted into university you'll fail you'll become a bum I mean so there are a lot of messages that are extremely incorrect that are being given to these children from many different places so not just from from the house so don't take that responsibility on yourself if if you've already asked your child you know am i are we putting that pressure on you and 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 that child said no then trust that message actually ask where are you getting this pressure from where what is happening and then work on helping helping your child speak to themselves in kind manner in a in a compassionate manner empathetic manner as well as recognizing the small wins the the the, the small achievements that they're actually getting into. And I don't even like the word small, but just the achievements that are, that are along the way, the progress along the way rather than the final outcome. Oh, such great advice. Thank you. Thank you, Thraya. Coming back to us adults, uh, no name, saying procrastinating. Hearing this chat, I'm thinking I am a bit of a perfectionist. I want to do a lot of things, but the issue is I keep putting them off. I'm looking for a promotion at work, exercise, but I don't get motivated to do anything and I'm getting a bit fed up with myself. I'm not depressed, but there can be moods. I'm looking at what changes I can make to improve myself, stop putting things off and just get on with what I want to do. I need some tips on how to pull myself together and take action without worrying about the outcome. I'm 40 with two kids. That's from no name. Okay. 
We've got a couple, of, we've got maybe three minutes to talk procrastination and its, its role with perfectionism. Thry, you talk there about, well, fear of failure, fear of not reaching an unrealistic goal or achievement or outcome, which can be paralyzing, stops you even trying in the first place. How can you help this listener and indeed me? This is absolutely something I suffer from. There are a few things I would love to do, love to do, but I just get in my own way. And I think it is fear of just looking like an idiot or getting it wrong or not, it not being good enough. Good enough. The worst words in the world. Thraya, help us. On this planet, good enough. And I, w- I would, I would first and foremost say, change your language. So the message said, pull myself together. I mean, that is so harsh, right? Instead of saying something like, pull yourself together, get it done, you know, you can hear the criticism and the judgment in that statement. Instead, saying, say something like, you know, I got this. I'm going to be okay. Let me start small. And then focus on the baby steps. Don't think of the final result. Think of the small things that you can do. If I'm trying to go from here to across the room and one leap, I'm going to fall back and I'm going to feel really horrible about myself to do that. However, if I put one foot in front of the other, I'm going to eventually get there. And that's the idea. What you want to focus on is the the process mm-hmm. rather than the end result. And that is that is key along with the language that you use with yourself. So the meaner you are with yourself, the harder it is for you to continue and be persistent and, and have that motivation. Be kind to yourself and recognize the, the wins that you are achieving and praise yourself for them because in the end, these are the things that are actually going to get you to move forward rather than being mean and being like, pull yourself together. It's not that big of a deal, you know, these, these kinds of things. And set reasonable goals because once you have that unrealistic goal that you're really trying to achieve, it's going to feel very overwhelming. And the last thing that you want to do, anybody wants to do, is feel that massive sense of discomfort and that massive sense of overwhelmingness. So instead, focus on the small goals, small, focus on the, the small wins so that you can get yourself to, to close to where you want to be. Actually, one of the things that I tell my interns all the time, because I supervise psychology interns, I tell them, I'm not looking for you to be good enough. I want you to suck less. That's all <laughs> I want you to do. Every day, suck less. And that's our motto in the office. Every day, suck less. <laughs> that's a girl I can get behind. Dr. Thraya, thank you so, so much. We barely touched on people pleasing. I would really like to revisit that in a future show. So thank you so much for your time today. Um, Dr. Thraya, you and the whole team, uh, absolute superstars over there at the Human Relations Institute and Clinic. Wishing you and everyone there the very best for the week ahead. And we'll catch up with you very soon. If there are any topics that are on your brain, bothering you, think you uh, really need to um, address or you've got maybe you found a great expert and you think we need to speak to them, please don't hesitate to get in touch. We talk about the things that you're talking about. You can contact us anytime on 4001 and you can use, of course, the ARN Play app. You're more than welcome, of course, to find me on Instagram and DM me there. It's an all-female lineup in the studio this afternoon and for good reason joined now by Sean and Betty who are about to take to the water in the 30th edition of the Dubai to Muscat Offshore Sailing Race. They leave this Saturday from Dosk Dubai Offshore Sailing Club as part of the first ever all-female team to take it on. How exciting. Thank you both for making time because I'm sure there's an awful lot of preparations that are probably going on behind the scenes to get you ready for Saturday morning. Um, Sean, I'd love to start with you because you grew up mostly in Dubai. Tell us how and when you first got into sailing. Yeah, thanks, Helen. Um, So, yeah, I've been in Dubai for pretty much 35 years now. And actually, the day I arrived in Dubai, I was down at Dubai Offshore Sailing Club. So it kind of became my second home. 
you know, I was only seven or eight at the time and, and learnt to learnt to sell then and have been on the water ever since. And, obviously, and Betty, you've been here a little less. You've been here just, just three years. What role has sailing had in terms of making Dubai feel like home and you building your own community here? Oh, it's been uh, one of the best things since we moved to Dubai with my husband's job only three years ago and right before COVID uh, hit. And um, one of the first places I went to was the Dubai Offshore Sailing Club when I came. And it really has helped us uh, very quickly fit into the community, build a community of friends. Uh, and then I bought a boat. Uh, <laughs> so, Where did you start sailing yourself and, and where was it? So I started sailing around when I was 17, 18. I have three older brothers and two of them got together and bought a Hobie Cat 16, which is these fun little colorful cat around you see out and uh, they brought me along for the ride and I was hooked I was hooked on the wind and the waves and the sun and I've been sailing in some form uh, ever since I, that's what I wanted to ask you what you get from from sailing you, you, your face just lights up when you're talking about that Betty what about you Sean what is it that you love about being on the water um I think it's a sense of peace I mean I'm a definitely a water baby so whether it's from swimming stand-up paddle boarding and and sailing really is you know kind of like three of my key hobbies and now we're throwing in a competitive edge yeah <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about this race Betty you've taken this on before and successfully completed it last year for anyone who's not familiar with the Dubai to Muscat race what's it all about how many nautical miles are we talking and how much time is it going to take you? Yeah, so uh, the race is 360 nautical miles. It takes us um, up the uh, eastern, uh, the western coast of um, of the UAE up to the beautiful Musandam Peninsula, and we go across that. And then we head out, um, uh, trying not to get too close to Iran, and then head straight south uh, to Muscat. Uh, the race, depending, of course, on wind conditions, um, 360 nautical miles will take anywhere between three to five days. So last year when I competed in the race, it, uh, it took us three days. We left on Saturday at 1 p.m. and arrived uh, Tuesday at 3 p.m. So it was exactly uh, 72. To 74 hours. <laughs> wow. I want to hear yeah. a little bit more about the preparation that's been going in, um, on in just a minute. But before we get to that, I want to know about your roles. Better your skipper. And Sean, I hear your normal position, pit boss and foredeck. What does that mean, Sean? <laughs> what are you going to be doing on board? Um, pulling all the ropes, basically. Um, so Betty, I think on this race, will be mostly in charge of um, navigation and, and keeping the boat going in the right direction. So, so um, helming, we call it, steering. Um, and I'll be running around the boat doing whatever Betty tells me, getting the sails up, getting the sails down, trimming them in when we when we pull them a little closer to the wind. Um, we are hoping for a lot of wind to come from behind us, which means we can get the boat going a bit faster um, and it'll mean we can put our big colourful spinnakers up, which are the big big sails, um, and that will be really where where I get to shine, I uh, hope. And, and Betty, how, so who's going to be on board then? Is it just the two of you or so you've got a few more? At the moment, there are three of us on the lineup with the fourth kind of waiting in the wings. Um, uh, and it's myself, Sean, and a third is, her name is Laura Giusti, and she's uh, uh, one of the new um, RYA keelboat instructors at DOSC. And so she's going to be a critical part of the team as well. Uh, we have have a very strong team between the three of us. We, um, Sean and I have both now done the Dubai to Muscat. Um, Sean has done it several times, actually, and there and the return trip back, because you remember... That's what I was going to say. <laughs> when you get there... Got yeah, you got to bring the boat back. You got to bring the boat back. Is it a bit more leisurely on the way back? Oh, for us it was. Last year we uh, we actually made a couple stops. We um, 
on the way back just to kind of take it a little bit more easy and have it be more of a cruising uh, return trip. This weekend, this Saturday, the 30th edition of the Dubai to Muscat offshore sailing race is uh, it's heading off and delighted to be joined in the studio now by Sean and Betty. They're part of the first all-female team to take it on. And I can't even imagine the amount of prep that's been going on behind the scenes. Betty, you are there. It's your boat. You're going to be mostly helming. I want to hear about the boat first, about what it looks like, the size, what's on board. I'm basically asking about toilets. <laughs> <laughs> so I have a Beneteau First 31.7. It was made in 2003. So she's coming on to almost 20 years old. What's um, her name? Her name is Songbird. Oh, I do she's, know it. Yeah. Okay. So she was actually named after uh, the Fleetwood Mac song. Beautiful. Yeah. So she actually um, is, n- is known as a cruiser racer. It's actually very, po- in the sailing world, it's a very well-known uh, little boat uh, because it was really made, uh, it's called a cruiser a racer cruiser actually said that it was made for if you wanted to race around and get some speed uh, but yet had some of the comforts that you could take your family yeah, uh, you know a, for a longer trip a, yeah a bit of a bit of a picnic and a long lunch and maybe an overnight if you if you fancied it as a family right so, so it does have a proper we don't call them toilets we call them the head and <laughs> it has a, a proper not we don't call it kitchen it's called the galley um, and a two burner stove that actually you can even cook while underway so even when the boat is rocking and rolling uh, uh, except all in except really heavy weather, the stove is on gimbal, so it actually moves stabilizes. Uh, and stabilizes. So That's you can so cool. um, you can actually um, uh, you know make some nice meals uh, and mm. eat well along the way, which uh, uh, well, we will be doing. Aside from obviously all the navigation prep you've been doing, I'm kind of curious if you've got three, maybe four people in close confines for up to five days. What about that personality match? What have you been doing there, Betty, to make sure you feel like you're going to be operating as a team? Well, you know, honestly, the three of us that are sailing together literally have really just met and gotten to know each other within the last two, two weeks. weeks. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I knew I knew Sean's uh, partner because he's a rigger, the local rigger. He's worked some on my boat, and I knew of Sean, and I had said hello to Sean, but um, I'd not ever sailed with Sean. So Sean and I sailed for the first time last uh, Sunday. We, two we went around the, the world, didn't exactly. we? Exactly. And then we both lo- came back. No yeah. one was thrown overboard. So. <laughs> no. no. No, it took eighty days. <laughs> yeah, and we and Laura, I also just met recently. So yes, we are actually going to be together now for three to five days. Really, relatively new, and we just had this big team building meeting on uh, or day on Sunday, and we were really good. That was one of the first things we talked about: uh, conflict resolution, um, the roles on the boat, what were our expectations and goals for the trip, and how do we. You know, when we get into a, a situation, you know, that we have a, a debrief afterwards. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Sean can say a little bit more about that. Communication. Yeah. I mean, you know, we're, we're a bunch of women on board. Um, it just means we're going to talk about things a lot more than mm-hmm. if it was a bunch of men. <laughs> what, I want to book food. I always come back to oh, food with role. me. <laughs> yeah, so tell us, you're prepping presumably a lot of meals. What's on the menu? Yeah, so um, I, I'm, I'm catering for, for five and a half days, um, four women, three meals a day. Um, we have two vegetarians and two non-vegetarians, so trying to get that balance um, and, and really catering to everyone's tastes as well. So I put a bit of a meal plan together. Um, I'm doing that anyway. I have a, have a coach, Sharon James. I, I work with her, actually. So I've been doing some meal planning for myself. So, you know, I kind of 
extended that out to the to the crew. Um, I batch made some uh, actually delicious mushroom risotto last night and some ratatouille, so that caters really well. So we've already got some meals. You're going to be vacuum packed. Quite a few ca- calories. Calorie burns are going to be significant, Betty. Yes, I. Definitely on the uh, when you're sailing, especially in a long trip like this, you don't want to get hungry. I think a lot of people think, "Ooh, a sailboat, will I get seasick?" And wh- one of the ways you can prevent that is actually kind of having, um, you know, eating well and mm. nutritious meals. And uh, you, we talked about it. You you want to eat before you get hungry. You want to drink before you get thirsty, and you want to put on a jacket or hat before you get cold. And take real good care of yourself um, because it's really a game of endurance yeah. uh, during those three to five days. And I tell you, Helen, it will get cold. It will get really cold. I'm cold, if cold you, now. If you think about the weather that we've been having mm-hmm. and then you take away the, um, the comforts of home and, and a you duvet add and, some wind. and you add some wind, hopefully, um, then you know, we're, we're going to be in full offshore gear and, and thermals. Question from Stephen saying, how does it work with sleeping? How, how, how does that work come nighttime? So we do have um, uh, we're a watch system where uh, two people will be on deck, and uh, if we end up being four, two will be down below resting, and we'll and then we'll stagger the watches. Um, the idea is really to kind of all of us be resting at some point a little bit through the twenty four hours. So we don't actually necessarily look at it as a as a night time, but rather a twenty four hour period. Yeah. So so you'll be getting maybe three hours at a time all the way through those three to five days. Pack some coffee, Sean. (laughs) (laughs) Get yourself this Benny's get sorted. Um, Lastly, where can we follow your progress? Are you going to be able to to share how you're getting on along the way? Uh, Yes, we are. So um, sort of a it's all come together really in the last couple of weeks. So we've not been as prepared as I would have liked. Um, I'm going to be posting as much as I can on my um, Instagram, so on some stories and stuff. Um, we've got a, a fantastic clothing sponsor, actually, Rooster, out of UK. Um, so they've they've sent us a bunch of gear, which we're really yes. excited. So they'll obviously be sharing some of our updates. Um, Margot Solutions, you can follow on Instagram as well, um, which is our colleague, um, Laura. So she's going to be covering a lot and, and doing coverage, especially on behalf of Dubai Offshore Sailing Club, because she is part of the um, the, team the, the team there. So, um, and then of course you can check out Women on the Water DXB as well because DOSC does actually have a female sailing community um, that is all about inclusivity and allowing you know women who haven't sailed before access to, to learning. And um, even on a Wednesday night, they take one of the the DOSC owned boats out. And if you haven't sailed before, you can you can get a little taster of what it's like to go out on a keelboat. Well, if you want details of that, if you're feeling inspired by Betty and Sean, get in touch. Just send the word sail and I'll send you the details of Women on the Water. Any last words, Betty? Just want to say, if you do want to follow our process, we have our progress and what we're doing in the boats. Each boat is uh, equipped with, uh, it's called a yellow brick tracker. And it has its own website and it will actually show all, like on a little map, Great a graphics. little boat, and it will go show our route. So that's something where you can truly follow minute by minute uh, a GPS signal will be sent and and it's so it's a it's a great website well you sound like an absolute dream team really <laughs> looking forward to following the progress can't wait to catch up when you get back and yeah thank you for coming in inspiring hopefully more women to get out on the water Sean and Betty all the very best aboard the beautiful songbird I'm sure she'll treat you very well indeed <laughs> The makeup industry is worth kajillions, billions. And every other week, it seems, another celebrity's created their own brand. However, how many of these are actually good for our skin, actually do what they say on the label? So many people at the minute looking for organic 
cruelty-free brands. But are they really what they say they are? What are some of the watchwords we should be looking out for and making sure we, uh, we buy the best? Joining us now is Nerissa Lowe. She is the founder of Light Organics, which is known for being vegan and cruelty-free and safe enough to eat. Nerissa. Thank you so you much, Helen. You brought me a snack this afternoon in the form of a foundation. <laughs> I had some foundation, yes. Stirred it in with my coffee. Have you, are you being serious? You actually could eat this? I could eat this. I mean, well, I've eaten it many times. I wouldn't recommend it, though. It doesn't taste too good. But, but, but safety-wise, it is possible. Yes, How, okay. it is possible. Now, I, well, let's go back a little bit. When you decided to start your own brand, what was, what was your why? What did you feel like was missing, either from, from your life or, I guess, the offering that was available to people? So just to share a little bit about my my backstory, I used to have like seriously bad skin. So my face was covered with acne. I had acne all over my chest, all over my back. And I had to get one of those steroid injections into my pimples every month. So it was like individually into my pimples. Like cystic acne. Yes, cystic acne. That's actually the word for it. And I had to do Oritane uh, on a daily basis. And it's horrible because it causes things like, you know, depression. It actually makes you fat. Um, It dries up your organs, dries up your skin, dries up your hair. And I did that for like three years. Right. And I was just like, you know what? I think what it does is that it just represses the, you know, the situation, but Mm -hmm. it doesn't actually cure me. So during that time, I've decided I'm going to find a cure for myself. So I went on a deep dive research. But what I found instead were the causes. So I found that I was very allergic to a lot of the chemicals that were in our skincare and our makeup. And so I decided to do a detox of my skincare routine. That sounds terrifying. Yeah, it's really to bad. be honest, because I've seen a lot of people doing detoxes of things like, you know, whether it's hydrocortisone or a- any kind of steroid creams, all sorts of acne treatments, and the way your skin has to go through a few processes to get to a place where you actually want to leave the house is significant. What was it like for it's you? It's bad. No, it took a while. So, But it cleared up in three months, though. So I found that my skin was a lot less angry when I switched to organic skincare. But what I couldn't find were organic makeup that actually worked for me because I'm a bit of a beauty junkie and I love, I love my colors. But I'm like, you know, the organic or the natural stuff that I could find um, were either greenwashed. <laughs> so yeah, they were. tell us about greenwashing. <laughs> okay, so greenwashing is definition um, it's when a product is deceptively marketed as clean slash environmentally friendly. And basically what happens is that people kind of like, you know, the consumers fall into this facade and they buy it thinking it's clean. But I've learned how to read ingredients lists. Um, so during the time when I was going through the organic skincare phase, I've learned how to read everything that I put on my skin. And when you turn to the back of your box, now this is a challenge for the listeners, turn to the back of your box of whatever it is you're using. Look at all the ingredients and ask yourself which one of these ingredients you would actually eat. Mm, do that with your <laughs> do that with your hair care, your shampoo, your skincare, your body wash, and ask that to yourself because sixty percent of what you put in your skin gets absorbed into your body. And I've learned how to do that. So when I got these products, I'm like, okay, how can you call yourself organic if you have SLS in it, if you have parabens in it? It's I mean, this is not well, cool. Well, that's a good question. Because Fiona's saying, how do brands get away with it? Because, yeah, you can slap an organic, you know, what does that actually mean? Does it mean that there might be one product in there that's organic and that means you can give it that label? What's, it, what, what, what's going on? I think a lot of people don't really understand, like, what it takes to be able to call yourself organic. Now, I've seen a lot of products in the market where the salespeople call it organic. But when you look at the box, none, there's nowhere on it that says it's organic. So it could be written on a website. It could be, you know, mentioned by salespeople. But it's not in the box because in order for you to say you're organic, you have to be at least 70%. Like, just to say you're made with organic ingredients, mm-hmm. right? 
for the USDA certification, you have to be 95% and above, can't contain minerals. And, you know, there's all these, like, definitions. On top of that, the word fragrance in any of your products actually contains, like, hundreds of different chemicals that the, the manufacturer doesn't have to say what it is because it's considered a trade secret. So this is how they get away with it. That's very sneaky. So let's talk about the alternatives then and when it came to sourcing because a lot of those, you know, ingredients we're talking about are there for a reason. It's because they, you know, get the, the look that people yeah. are wanting to achieve. They might have the longevity of the product, et cetera, et cetera. So I guess you were then trying to find a balance between being truly organic and natural and serving your own health, but also not compromising on the efficacy? Yes, absolutely. Because when I was creating my own line, because I couldn't find something that you know, I liked, I was like, you know what, the only way for me to do this is to create my own line. And because I knew exactly what the ingredients were and what they did for you, I'm like, I need to be able to create a line where I could look at my ingredients list, know exactly why every single ingredient is doing is there, like mm-hmm. what function it does. And to be very, very sure it doesn't have any harmful effects. So I work very closely with factories, you know, I get a whole list of ingredients, I clarify everything, I work with a cosmetic pharmacist, who's also trained in this area. Um, and we basically, you know, roll out products that only we both know that it's 100% clean and super safe and I would eat it. <laughs> she would eat it. I um, would eat so, it. So, so, so before I let you go back to Singapore, you're flying. <laughs> um, what's in the range? Um, so right now we have a full range. We have our liquid foundations. We have our press blush. We have concealers, liquid lipsticks, lip glosses, mascara, eyeliner, but we are also launching our eyeshadow range and our press foundation range in May. Um, we are also coming out with our pencil liners. Finally, I finally found pencil <laughs> liners that are not made from lead. The excitement <laughs> in your voice. I know. I've been searching like all my life for pencil liners that does not contain lead and mercury. And I finally found a formulation that I like. Very happy with it. We are also going to be launching new shades of lipsticks because this is one of, of our top sellers. And we want to offer a bigger range to our customers. Um, and lastly, we had a message going, what is, what's it called? So t- can you just explain the spelling of the name and if anyone wants to find the products here in the UAE, how to get hold of them, Larissa? So light is spelled L-I-H-T. It stands for living in her time because I want to encourage women to be fully authentic. You know, I know we're not perfect, but I want us to be authentic and very, very present in every moment that we live in because it's so easy to get washed away in you know, the sea of everything of today, right? And you are retailing here? Yes, I am retailing here. We are available at Faces and April Beauty, Mall of the Emirates, Dubai Mall and Dubai Hills here in Dubai. Um, and then we're also in LA and we're also in Alwada and Sahara Mall. Well, congratulations. Thank I think you. you've solved a problem for yourself, but also probably an awful lot of people who are listening today. If anyone wants the details, you can send me the word beauty and I will send the link over. And there's a safe travels back to Singapore. Thank you for coming in today. Thank you so and much. And I think Alan. alerting a lot of people to some of the, the marketing gimmicks that are definitely kicking around the beauty industry. If you do want details, drop me a little message. <laughs> And thank you for downloading this episode of the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. Don't forget, you can subscribe. You'll get it direct to your phone as soon as it's out. And you can listen to me live on Dubai Eye 103.8, Monday to Friday between 2 and 5 p.m. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.